Welcome to our wonderful listeners, wherever you are in the world. We know we've got listeners in Greece. Greece, yeah. India. Um, the US. Yeah, Israel. Australia. Yeah, all over the place. So it's growing, Voices to Dream. Mm-hmm, yeah. Definitely. More and more popular by the day. Yeah. And it's going to be even more popular once once everyone hears about this next guest. Yes. We've yeah. We've got a lovely guest with us tonight, I do believe. Yeah. And you know a lot more about this lovely guest than I do. About, I do. About this I loved guest. her book. Yeah. yeah. And you forgot to say who you are. Yeah. So I'm Richard Harris, Dr. Richard Anthony Harris. Mm-hmm. And you are? I'm Suzanne Mann. Fantastic. And we're voices to dream, aren't we? Yes. Okay. And we've got the lovely Gina Wilkinson with us tonight. Tell us a bit more about Gina Wilkinson. Well, I I sort of have stalked Gina on Instagram because my mum and I, we do book reviews. Yes, you do. Yeah. Mariah and the <clears throat> book reviewers on yes, Instagram. I've heard of you. Yeah. Have you? And, yes. <laughs> and we read, we read and reviewed one of Gina's. Well, your it's your first and it's your it's your first novel, isn't it? Um uh, in the Apricots yeah, Blue. My first novel, but not my first book. I no, because you've a fiction book. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. And so we might hear a bit more about that as well. So I wanted to quickly welcome Gina Wilkinson, the amazing, who author, journalist, mother, juggler of everything. <laughs> lover of lover of hairless cats. Yes. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. A real hairless, hairless cat. cat. Really. <laughs> yeah. I just know I, have, I have a um, a husband with cat allergies, so this ah, was the only cat that was that was possible, and uh, he's turned out to be fantastic. Actually, yeah. Um, yeah. feels beautiful and has a lot of charisma. <laughs> Wonderful! <laughs> oh, very good. Well, I just know them as the Austin Powers cats. So, <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I my cat is much more attractive than that. He is a cat of color. He is a gray cat. Which you know, the Austin Powers cat looks a little bit like a boiled cat, but my cat doesn't look like that. Much, much more handsome. Much more handsome. Anyway, oh, very good. Just well, talk to me on Instagram. You'll you'll see him. He's he's lovely. Yeah, we're, and we're gonna we'll be talking about all of the ways to catch up with Gina at the end of the show. But um, so we're gonna be talking to Gina about wow about lots of things. Gina has had an amazing life, which I'm gonna get Gina to just mm-hmm. fill us in. Check in first. Yeah, I'm gonna get her to fill us in on that. But I said I was about oh. to say we're gonna check in first. Oh, okay, cool. Would you like to No, me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm gonna get you to check in. I will check in first. I will check in first. We usually check in <clears throat> first, Gina, just so that you get a hang of what checking in is. Um I am a bit I'm a bit of an emotional mess today, actually. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to be completely truthful. Okay. <laughs> I've been a bit of an emotional mess today. Um, lots of guys, lots of things going on in my life. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes all of that pressure, sort of like, you know, <laughs> you feel like you're about, you're a volcano that's about to explode. So, um, but you've pulled yourself together. I've pulled myself together for the podcast, but I do think yeah. that um, I had a good cry today, and I feel like sometimes you just need a good cry as that little pressure release valve. Yeah. So, um, that's me checking in. Yeah. How are you going, Richard? Oh, I'm just wonderful. <laughs> uh, life is just nuts and chaos and chaotic, and it's good to be sitting down talking to a sane person over here with Ingina. Oh, no, I mean you. Oh, me. (laughs) Sorry, I thought there was a fourth person. (laughs) I I knew he wasn't talking about me. (laughs) So, yeah, Uh look, I'm heading heading to Bliss 
planned in four days to go and write my second novel in Portugal. So I'm kind of thinking if I can get through this madness and fixing aneurysms and all this crazy surgery stuff, I will be able to write about 11th century maidens and knights and things. So that's what I'm looking forward to. But uh, yeah, that's how I'm checking in. A little bit crazy too. (laughs) Well, Gina, are you bringing any sanity to us here today? How are you checking? Well, I can't guarantee. Yeah, I can't guarantee anything on that fold, that front. Oh, sorry, uh, wrong person. Um, but uh, I'm actually feeling pretty good because um, my husband and I have been uh, uh, renovating a house. And also um, we were living overseas for 20 years and we moved back just before the start of the COVID pandemic. We've been in lots of, you know, Airbnbs and rentals. And well, we renovated an old house that we bought. And um, I have been without a garden now for um you know over two years and today just finished transforming our backyard which was 100 percent concrete into <sighs> something that i can plant plants in so this weekend is going to be um planting even though i only had a concrete backyard and i ran out of money because i was renovating a house i've grown some amazing plants from seed um from Beautiful. cuttings i just thought i've got no budget so i'm just going to do seeds and cuttings and wow did that work out well so i actually am feeling great i've got some green lawn uh, which i did not grow from seed it just <laughs> rolled it out and um wow what a transformation so for me having a garden and i think many people probably experienced this during the pandemic such a stress relief mm. uh you know it's um i'm one of those pers- people that often you know worries about things and you know very organized and or tries to be very organized and when i'm in my garden i can just be in the moment and there's not too many moments where i'm just in the moment so mm. um yeah today is a very good day seeing the concrete go and grass roll out and um, garden beds freshly you know full of compost mulched ready oh, to I go love it. so awesome mm. day for me oh i love it well yeah done. very positive yeah there's nothing better i must admit i i must agree i love you know i don't do it that much because yeah at the moment my garden's just full of weeds <laughs> But when it's fresh and you can plant new, put new things in and have put Mm. some fresh flowers in. Oh, it's just beautiful. I I can totally, totally understand that feeling. Mm. Beautiful. I'm so glad you're going to have that for the weekend. Congratulations. (laughs) Very exciting. Yeah. Well, would you like to, would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself, Gina? Tell us, tell us why, why, why have we got you here today? Are you just a random person I've, I've seen on the street? No, well, gosh, when I saw the questions we were going to be um, asking, I was like, oh, why did they ask me to this? <laughs> Have they got the right person? Um, no, okay. So uh, I'm originally from Western Australia. I uh, grew up in a variety of very small towns in WA. My family moved around a lot. And uh, that sort of continued into my adult life. I have moved around a lot. I mentioned that uh, I just spent the last um, 20 years or so overseas. Um, I uh, That started when I was 17. I left my town of 1,500 people, uh, two pubs and no traffic lights, and oh I went to Brazil for a year. I came back to Australia and I studied journalism. I worked um, in independent radio and then I worked for SBS. And then uh, 
I went off overseas again, met my husband in Canada and we moved around a bit more to Thailand and other places, uh, including Iraq, where I worked as um, firstly for the United Nations uh, under Saddam Hussein. And then uh, when the Iraq war started, I returned to being a journalist and I was the ABC's correspondent in Baghdad. And the reason we connected, uh, Suzanne, is because I wrote a book called When the Apricots Bloom. That was, that, that is fiction, but it was inspired by a real life and very complicated relationship that I had with an Iraqi woman uh, who turned out to be an informant for Saddam Hussein's secret police. And she was secretly, you know, spying on what I did and, and reporting back. And... Um, I got to say, I, you know, I definitely do not blame her at all for that. You know, if Saddam Hussein and the secret police say they want something, very few people were in a position to say no. Um, but when I started writing this book, you know, it was many years later and I was still thinking to myself, you know, were we actually friends? Mm -hmm. You know, was it just an unpleasant duty? Is that why she spent time with me? Or was there something underneath that? Um, and so I started writing a book um, that begins with the moment the secret police arrive at the home of an Iraqi secretary working in the Australian embassy and tell her that she has to befriend her boss's wife in order to gain access to information. And it's told from the perspective of the Iraqi woman who's doing the spying and uh, from the person, the perspective of the foreign wife that she is um, informing on and then also from the perspective of a third woman an Iraqi artist and mm. I did that because I wanted to show uh, some of the less you know oppressive sides of life in Iraq some of the more wonderful aspects of Iraq and the art scene there was just amazing and I am extremely grateful for that I met a lot of artists I made a lot of friends in the artistic community so I wanted to show a bit more of a rounded perspective and I guess um, that is how I got uh, invited <laughs> along here tonight. Was the um, was it that always in you to want to write a novel and this subject matter came along or how did it where did it that form how did you formulate that? Yeah actually um, no people you know they used to say to me oh you should write a book this is especially when I was in Iraq I used to do something send out a little email letter called uh, I think it was the Baghdad Bulletin and people would write back to me and say you should write a book and I think gosh no you know that's 300 pages you've got to have a plot I'm a, a journalist I'm used to reporting on what's happening on this day or you know maybe um, a half hour documentary, um, but definitely not a 300 page book that's going to take years in the making. Um, but then actually after Iraq, it turned out um, I wrote my first book. It was a narrative nonfiction. So it was true, but told like a story. And it's mm. the story of what happened to me and my closest women friends mm. during that period from when I arrived in Iraq till when I left. So starting about a year before the war and ending about a year later. And, um, you know, that was just sort of an accident. I never thought that I would have enough information to fill up uh, a, a book or the desire to fill up a book. But um, I found after that event that, that you know, I did have something to write mm. about and that I enjoyed it. Mm. And uh, I guess uh, several years later, I was still thinking about that relationship and that complicated friendship. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and 
I guess, work it out on, on paper, imagine what the answers could be and how someone could be in such a situation. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Did, did you ever contact her again or do you know what happened? I have her? seen her since, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And How I did she turn out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to read the book. Okay. You have to read the book to know, yeah. <laughs> to know, to, to have an insight into maybe what's what's happening there. But um, I wanted to ask as well. Now, you in, in that other twenty years, you've done a lot of traveling to other places as well. Now, where, what's and and worked for? I understand, as I understand, BBC, ABC, NPR. Yeah, a What's lot of public broadcasters. I'm definitely, definitely a public broadcaster um, person, mostly in in radio. So yeah, all my um, employers were in public broadcasting. Yeah. Because um, you know I do think of journalism as a public service, and uh, that's you know you've got different agendas in the commercial media, not saying that it doesn't deserve a place on the radio dial or on your TV or in your reading, but you've got a different um, agenda mm. and uh, or news, you know, different priorities in the news that you select. Um, and I've always been a public broadcaster. And uh, when I actually moved to um, Iraq, my husband had been following me around the world, uh, following my career, and uh, he was actually offered a job working for UNICEF in mm. Baghdad. Right. And at that time, we were told that it would be a very uneventful posting. Uh, <laughs> this country was, um, yeah, I know, hard to believe now, right? <laughs> but we were told, you know, the country's under sanctions, nothing happens without Saddam Hussein's say-so, there are only a handful of foreigners there, uh, no one's allowed in and out, it's very, very quiet. And um, he, because he'd been sort of following me around, we sort of thought, well, you know, this is a good opportunity for him, even though it meant that I could not work as a journalist because mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein didn't allow foreign journalists into the into the country except for some, you know, very tightly controlled little press tours where you're in and out in a week. Um, but I, you know, being a journalist, I was still sort of intrigued about the idea of going to Iraq, I guess partly because it was sealed off from the outside world and also because it has played such a pivotal part in history both modern history and ancient history. Mm. And the idea of being allowed in, you know, to experience that was um, intriguing. Uh, and so I agreed to go and pretty much as we crossed the border, uh, George Bush, President uh, George Bush Senior, uh, gave the infamous axis of evil speech. And all of a sudden it became clear that it wasn't going to be an uneventful posting. Mm. Uh, far from it. Uh, so I was um, went from being like a career woman to suddenly being the only the, the I had a terrible visa category. It was dependent spouse. <laughs> was the only Western dependent spouse in all of Iraq, and uh, so it was quite a transformation. And uh, actually, the the Western woman in my book she experiences the same thing. She's a journalist. She gives up her job and she's suddenly a dependent spouse. But unlike her. Um, I actually went out and found myself a part-time job working for the UN Oil for Food program. And unlike her, I also um, was very careful not to go around poking my nose into uh, other people's business or going places where I shouldn't have been because, you know, we were given a briefing before we went into Iraq by the UN security services saying, you know, it, the, the office is bugged. 
your home will probably be bugged. Uh, if you want to have a private conversation, go for a walk outside because uh, oh. just avoid any power source for a, for a microphone. And so just assume anything you say indoors will be heard. So, um, wow. was, you know, you very, like that? Uh, you know, it is amazing what you can get used to. Um, and also, we didn't have any secrets. Um, we were under a lot of surveillance, but we didn't have any uh, secrets. Uh, we did have a couple incidents where we had, I, well, you know, I did get my steps in. I went for a lot of walks, <laughs> but it was just to get out of the house. Um, but, you know, we had a couple incidents where we had things we didn't want the regime to know about. And in that case, we'd usually go in the bathroom. We'd turn on the tap at the basin. We'd oh turn on wow. the exhaust fan. We'd turn on the shower. Cold we'd flush the loo, and then we'd whisper in each other's ears. Um, <laughs> or if I w did something and I was worried that they might have a camera, I would often go into the pantry, and um, I had to take some money out of the country once, and I was only allowed to take out a very, very small amount of money. I took. Um, a calzone, the Iraqi version of a calzone, into the pantry and unstuffed it, wrapped my money up in glad wrap, stuffed the money into the calzone and then stuffed the, the food back in <laughs> and uh, took the calzone with me as my lunch. And, oh, um, my goodness. You know, so I did do some, you know, I never thought I'd be stuffing money in a calzone in a pantry, <laughs> but, um, you know. That. Never done that? <laughs> no. Life no. takes unusual turns. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it because I'd be concerned that yeah, are they are they just listening or are they watching as well? Are they recording? Yeah. I mean, was it? Are they in your bedroom? <laughs> yeah, little... I did. You know, we did think about that. We kept the lights off, but um, <laughs> you know, um, it is amazing what you can get used to. I guess the biggest thing was that was hard to get used to was having to censor yourself. Mm. And knowing that everyone around you was also censoring yourself because mm. themselves, uh, you know, because Saddam Hussein was everywhere. Everywhere mm. he looked, he was on a billboard. He was in a, on a statue. He was painted on the wall. Um, and yet it was completely taboo to say his name out loud because mm -hmm. my Iraqi friends, if I said his name out loud, they'd get nervous that whoever is listening in would suddenly be paying attention. Right. So no one said his name out loud and it yeah. was such a weird you know, wow. contrast between seeing his name everywhere and yet his name never passed. It was seeing his face everywhere, but his name never passed mm. anybody's lips. Um, so, you know, it was a strange experience. But also I think being under that sort of pressure, you know, the pressure of um, war approaching, the pressure of being under um, in com situations of conflict and dealing with um, the losses that we experienced, uh, you know, I feel like I really did make my closest, you know, some of my closest, most lasting friends there. Um, and, you know, there's that sort of cliche that old soldiers say, oh, I never made such good mates as I made in the trenches. Well, I, you know, I understand that now because I think many people experience, not just in war zones, but if you have some sort of tragedy and someone else goes through it with you, you do mm. have a connection yeah. that can be, you know, very strong and endure for, um, you know, a long time. I'm still in touch with many of my Iraqi friends and it was mm. 20 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I left, there was no working phone, there were no, um, was no working internet and yet somehow we still managed to stay connected. Wow. How terrifying was it as the war sort of started and... I mean, it must have been very frightening, I'd imagine. Um, yeah, you know, I was young then. I was 32 
and I think I still had, even though I had been a journalist for a long time and I knew that terrible things happen to good people, I think I still had this belief that if you are a good person, if you try as hard as you can, um, you'll be okay. And, you know, that's not always the case, unfortunately. And so I guess I sort of lost my naivety there. And I think also I had confidence, you know, that I could be, I would be protected by the, as being a UN, um, you know, associated with the UN, being an aid worker or being a journalist. Up until that time, it had been fairly rare for journalists or aid workers to be actively targeted in a war zone. We mm. did to a large extent, we were protected or we weren't targeted. And, you know, during the Iraq war, that definitely changed and you did become an actual target um, as opposed to just, um, you know, being caught a, a, a collateral. You yeah. were actually a, a target. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it was. But I think it's um, when you're doing a job, you just get in there and do it i you know you don't think about it too much or i guess you wouldn't do it mm. you just think of it as your job and that's what you have to do and um yeah mm. go out and do it Gosh. so um i guess Andrew. suspended um suspend your disbelief i guess mm. in a way yes. like uh, being in a novel <laughs> reading yeah. a novel you got to suspend your disbelief and you just got to keep going uh, yeah one of the, one of the areas that i found <laughs> one of the things from the book that I found really interesting that I had not realized was actually in regards to Saddam's sons and how they were, um, how they were treating people and in particular women. Um, and the, you know, well, in the book, there's the daughter um, who's afraid of being taken by, by one of his sons. Um, and I think there's the story of someone who actually, on their wedding day, I mean, was that made up? Someone who on, who on their no, wedding no, that day was gets, true, actually. gets yeah, taken. Yeah, there are a little. Yeah, I did include quite a few um, real life uh, things that happened in Iraq. Uh, you know, some of them I had to take out actually when it was during during the editing process because they were just too confronting. Right. Or I guess they took the. I remember there was one thing I wanted to include. Um, about uh, you know a woman who was a doctor and uh, she was executed by the regime and I tried to write that into the book but I think I got off track in trying to, to sort of pay homage to her yeah. uh, but there's sure plenty in there to um, there's definitely enough to show you what was what was going on but yeah definitely um, it was um, not safe to be a, a woman that definitely you know you weren't protected in any way and you were um, from Uday Hussein in particular, Saddam's son. I think he was the one that people feared more than Saddam. Saddam seemed to operate reasonably logically, um, whereas Uday uh, was, uh, you know, murderous mm. psycho. So, uh, yeah, he, he was definitely, I pro think, probably the most feared, mm. Um, mm. you know, person in Iraq at that, at that time. Mm. And just to, I mean, I guess as a, as a mother as well, to have that whole sense of, you know, that your, your, I mean, your daughter's, your daughter's not actually necessarily safe. And, and even in saying that, neither were your sons either, because then, you know, to, to live in a situation where your child at any time can be taken to, 
join the army or be taken as like a sex slave or just killed um, for no real reason. Mm. It's just like, it's just, it's virtually incomprehensible. I mean, living in Australia, it's, it's hard to imagine such a thing. Yeah, you know, um, it was, um, you know, terrible under Saddam Hussein. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people around the world are living with that that daily fear of not mm. knowing if your child is going to come home. If we look at the situation uh, in Ukraine, for example, mm. uh, you know, uh, there is a lot of conflict around the world where parents, unfortunately, don't, you know, aren't able to be, have confidence that their kids can go out and, and come mm. home mm. Uh, safely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very true. Gina, I'd imagine there's very few uh, Western people that got that perspective. Has anyone else written about those times from... One of the reasons that I wanted yes. to do this book um, was because there was some, you know, literature coming out of uh, Iraq tended, tended to be, whether it was written by Iraqis or Westerners, um, from a very male perspective. And one of the things I wanted to do was write from a female perspective. And even though, you know, there were very high stakes events taking place, very unusual events, I tried always to put them in a setting that women all around the world could relate to. You know, one of the scenes that I found um, the most nerve wracking um, actually takes place in a kitchen while uh, one of the protagonists is trying to cook a, a chicken, roasted chicken for her son. <laughs> and, you know, so it happens against this backdrop of everyday life. Mm. And I wanted to try and show that female perspective of how women um, dealt with violence and the challenges that they faced and put it in a way that anyone can. Uh, appreciate especially women you know the women in my books they have a lot of experiences that any woman around the world would experience you know they are trying to juggle work and home they have to deal with rebellious teenagers one of them is always um starting diets and then falling off the uh, bandwagon in a spectacular um you know crash of of, of candy um so you know i tried to include the things that we share in common yeah. Yeah. Um, because there are so many things, you know, that we share in common and we might um, bake our bread differently or we might pray differently, but there also are a lot of similarities. And I really wanted to focus on that because at the moment it feels like we're so divided and we're really mm -hmm. retreating into our tribes and, you know, mm -hmm. finding so many differences. Um, whereas I think, you know, I've lived around the world in a lot of places and we do, you know, there are many things that we share in common. Of course, every place is unique, but uh, I think the most important things we do share in common and that is, you know, love of family and friends, uh, the desire to uh, reach or be able to reach your full potential, um, the desire for safety, um, shelter, security, you know, these are basic things that we all share. Mm. And so I wanted to show that in this book yeah mm. i and i it was one of my um it was one of my favorite things actually even in your author note at the very end of the book how you actually say um we we share far more in common than that which divides us i hope this book shows that and um 
you know, I, I teach a, I facilitate a compassion course and, you know, we, we talk about common humanity and just like me, and it truly is. I think that, um, and I think you're pointing out as well that we might be talking about you in Iraq in Saddam Hussein's regime, but as you say, this is still happening all around the world. You know, there are people faced with this every day in different countries. And I think that, well, I know personally, you know, I can get caught up in my life here in Sydney and, and you sort of tend to forget that. So I really appreciate you bringing that up as well. So just, and I guess that's what, that's what we sort of, you know, what we want to do with this, um, with this podcast is remind people about some of the different things that are going on in the world and have, and get people thinking about those things, even if it's not, you know, what's on the news today, um, what else can be happening? Sure. And I, um, I feel like it's a bit of a good segue into mm -hmm. the next part, which, so this is where we actually, as much as there can be sort of negative stuff going on in the world, um, where I guess the, the whole thing of voices to dream is that we are dreaming and imagining better and hope and not giving up that hope in the world. So what we've actually done is we pull out a little part from Richard's book, Imagine, um, because it really does cover all of the different, so many different things that you could imagine happening in the world. And then we like to, we just want to have a bit of a discussion with you about what you think. And I guess, I guess what it is, it's a bit of a brainstorm as to how can we do better? If we ruled the world, what would we do right now to make a change? Okay, so see what you think about, um, about this part. Um, this was actually based in Afghanistan. Yeah. So it's not Iraq. We didn't, you didn't have a chapter on Iraq. You missed that no, one. I missed Iraq. This one's based in um, the Middle East, though. In Afghanistan. Yeah. And it's after, after everyone in the world actually becomes compassionate, cooperative, you know, the people that, uh, in my mind, I would love all of us to be all the time. Okay. So let's see what, what, what comes up here. It was hard to conceive that half of the people they were now sitting down with had either been Taliban or had been on both sides of the conflict as it had progressed and changed over many years. Here they were breaking bread and conversing with tolerance, friendliness and real interest with people who had been the very opposite of those ideals in the past. These were people with expertise in manufacturing improvised explosive devices. Some were crack snipers. Some were tunnelers who had burrowed under the local opposition commander's home to plant a bomb to unseat another oppressor while killing his entire family while doing it. While they did talk about how much everything had changed, especially their perspectives on cultural differences, their position in the world, their history, they were more focused on how lovely the day was, how fresh the fruit was, and what their hopes for the future were. The focus now was on the present and the immediate future, their dreams for their country, their hopes for traveling and seeing the world. What do you think? Is it possible? Okay. Um, it's interesting that uh, Richard is, uh, you know, that chapter is about Afghanistan. 
you know, a country that has had so much conflict. And um, today I saw some very sad news that uh, the Taliban have decided to ban girls in grades um, six and above from attending school. And, you know, that's got terrible repercussions for girls and women themselves, but also for broader, um, you know, the broader Afghani society. And that's because, um, you know, if you look at strategies for peace, and for bringing lasting peace, uh, the participation of women is absolutely key. Uh, I saw some amazing um, research that showed that when women are direct participants in peace agreements, the likelihood of a peace agreement lasting more than two years increases by 20%. And the probability of it lasting over 15 years increases by 35%. So when we're looking at, um, you know, ways to bring about peace, I think, you know, women uh, need to play a much larger role and can play a much larger role in peace building if they are given the opportunity, uh, the space and um, the opportunity to reach their full potential as uh, peace builders. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's actually a you know, when you look at the most stable and the most peaceful countries in the world, they generally have much higher levels of gender equality and, and the reverse is true as well. You know, mm. women uh, have different networks than men and often they are the first to pick up tensions that can then escalate into conflict and certainly I saw that uh, myself in Iraq that uh, women were much more... I guess, intuitive about what was likely to happen um, after the fall of Saddam Hussein in terms of um, the instability that followed. And, you know, women are also very immersed into their communities. They have insights into the different needs of different parts of the communities. And when they are involved, directly involved in negotiating agreements about peace, um, you know, they look at broader issues of just say, you know, not just firing bullets at each other, they look at the broader needs of their communities. And that is something I think that is essential. If you want peace to last, you need to do more than just stop the bullets flying. Yeah. That can be just a, a Band-Aid fix. And I think, um, you know, involving women in crafting peace is um, you know one of the strategies uh, that we should be pursuing in terms of um, making a peace lasting, um, of of generating reconciliation. Um, women, uh, you know, they're already educating children. They're already counselling um, family members not to engage in violence. So they are already out there building trust, um, building dialogue and uh, so for me I think you know if we look at a future a peaceful future I see the role of um, women um, as, as central to that. Mm. And how <clears throat> it's so hard to envisage when they're making these crazy decisions to ban women from from even learning you know secondary education it's uh, I mean I am understanding of reality and 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 but still a great dreamer but but yeah we also kind of have to look for practical ways forward and then yeah, do you think do you think it comes down to a 
fear? Like, I mean, I, I know this is a quite a basic thing, but uh, is there a, a fear in some of these well, not even in specific cultures, but I'd say all around the world, is there is there a fear from men about women know, becoming I mean, involved? You've lived in the, that society where where there, there is this uh, gross paternalism. There's still lots in Australia as well. But I mean, what what was the key? What why were they so suppressing of women? Do you think? Why do you think those societies do that? Well, actually, you know, um, I haven't been to Afghanistan, um, but in Iraq, um, a lot of people are surprised to find out that um, under Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, he was a terrible human rights oppressor, but he also um, was a reasonably intelligent man and he recognised the value that women mm. could contribute to the economy, um, to society and... Uh, under Saddam Hussein, women in Iraq actually had greater legal rights than uh, any other women in the Middle East. They had very important positions in government. Um, my friends were uh, doctors, engineers, um, professors. Uh, they drove themselves around. They seemed to have um, a significant amount of power in their personal relationships at home. Uh, so in comparison to some other countries, um, under Saddam Hussein, you know, it was still, I'm not saying that he was a model to follow at all, but he did recognise mm. the value of, of women. Um, and after the war, unfortunately, the more um, fundamentalist, um, uh, misogynist aspects of society, the groups in society did try and take control. And uh, nowadays, for example, you'll see many, many women wearing the headscarf in Iraq, um, whereas when I was there, I only had one friend that chose to wear the headscarf. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, I remember one of my friends, she's an, an artist, a uh, really inspiring woman. Um, I think the final straw for her, she had, you know, she could, probably could have left Iraq, but she was one of the people under Saddam Hussein, she was one of the people that said, you know, if we leave, who, who is left? You know, uh, who, who's left to try and maintain some normality, um, mm. some civility. Uh, and the straw for her, the last straw for her was when her husband started pressuring her to wear the headscarf. And it wasn't that he believed she should wear the headscarf at all. It was because he was frightened if she left home without it, someone might attack her. Mm. And that was, you know, uh, the last straw for them. And, and they um, mm. actually... Uh, became sort asylum and living Canada now and um, you know that was uh, something that was really you know hard uh, to see was the rollback of women's rights uh, in Iraq and you know it's not just Iraq it's many yeah. countries in conflict women are often uh, you know the the their rights are the one of the first victims Mm. Uh, one of the first things to suffer during conflict and um, it's ironic that also women you know can be the most effective peace builders as well so you know there's definitely a link between uh, how societies respect women and the chances that of those countries you know having mm. prosperity mm. and and having having peace mm. so it's just silly really Oh, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's about control, I guess. I don't know. It's just ridiculous. Well, and I guess the part of it for me, I, what it brings up for me as well is how do we 
which I guess is sort of like our, our coming back to the, then if, if we're looking at the big systems and we're saying, okay, women play an integral, you know, are, are an integral part in making this happen. What can we do today in each of our lives here now, any of our listeners to start making this change? What, what, what do you think, you know, what's, what's the answer? Question. All right. Well, you know, this is such a, a big question. Um, and it's, you know, when I saw that that was going to be one of the things we were discussing, I thought, oh, gosh, um, I'm going to have to come up with some solutions for world peace. J- yikes. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. and it's a I brainstorm. Doing- <laughs> yeah. So I started doing some research as I do. And um, I came across an organization um, or an agreement, it's called the Women's Peace and Security and Humanitarian Aid Compact. It's supported by many countries around the world. And uh, you can visit it at, uh, let me read this, wpshacompact.org. Okay, I'll put that up on me. Yes, you can become a signatory to this pact. And now, Anyone can participate. You can participate if you're in government. You can participate if you're in any sort of um, civil society organisation or network. If you're in the education sector, if you're in the private sector, if you're in a youth organisation, if you're in an international or regional organisation. So that covers a huge amount of people. Mm. So the first step, you review the framework. Um, it is available in many different languages. Then there's a list of actions that you can download and you just select one or more actions from any of the, I guess, focus areas and you identify possible partners that you can work with on these actions. And then you fill out a form indicating um, what actions you want to take and what investments you're going to make, whether that's time or money. Um, to, to implement them. But, uh, you know, it sounds daunting, but it actually means, for example, if you're in the private sector, uh, you might be an IT company or uh, telecommunications. You can help women peace builders to access digital technologies. Um, you can also commit to protecting the information of women, um, the protecting the information and privacy of human rights defenders, uh, peace builders and other activists. Wow. Uh, so, you know, that's an example of how the private sector could get involved. Mm. Uh, if you're in the education sector, in academia, you can fund, support or undertake research into the root causes of conflict, uh, into potential solutions about how gender equality uh, intersects with peace. Uh, if you're part of a community organisation, um, you can support women and girls to participate uh, in all spheres of society as police, uh, as military, as mm. judges, as corrections officers in government. Uh, these are all key areas when we're talking about not just peace in uh, wartime uh, scenario, but also peace on the streets, mm. you know, um, mm. having more um, female police, more female judges, um, more female decision makers can definitely influence mm. how uh, society functions. Mm. Um, so these are all, you know, 
practical steps mm. that uh, we could take to achieve peace through gender equality. And another big one, of course, is engaging men and boys um, as allies and partners. So, um, you know, I was actually really glad that you asked me that question because I was a bit flummoxed at first. I was a bit daunted. I was thinking, gosh, well, what can I possibly have to say? And um, then I came across that's this organization that's amazing. and I thought they've actually got um, some real one. practical yeah. steps that, yeah. uh, you know, private sector, academia, yeah. community mm. organizations, these are all things. And that was just some of the, yeah. the mm. actions that you could take. They've got pages yeah. and pages. And you just look up, am I government? Am I private sector? Which area do I want Which to make depends. an impact in? And they give you um There's all these ideas. organizations you haven't even heard of. Mm. But you know what I think, what, what I find interesting there, I can't remember if it was on TV or if I read something the other day, what it was, but um, I was watching something and it was showing how they had, a, it was like a kindy classroom. And they were getting them to draw pictures of different, um, they said, we're going to say something and draw a picture of the person. And so they were saying, you know, draw a picture of a um, firefighter, um, draw a picture of a doctor. And they did, they, they picked quite a few different um, professions. And I think out of the 25 kids, only two of them actually drew a female. They were all men that they drew. Mm. And then yeah, they so. then they said they actually brought in a, a doctor who was a woman to talk to them and a firefighter who was a woman to talk to them. And they were, I mean, the kids were all, you know, it was just, it's just this, it's this strange thing that I don't know how it gets inbuilt in, in our minds as, as kids. Mm. Um, yeah. Got lots to work on. Yeah. You know, like huge area. Yeah. 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 So that that sort of struck me. That sort of struck me. And I was thinking, mm. so um, what do you think? What do you think? What can you do today? If you don't want to, if you don't want to, if you're what if you're a bit too um what if you're like, okay, but I, I don't know if I can join a big organization or a big because but I I actually love that and I think everyone should be looking at that. I'm gonna put that down. But um do you think it's just about, is it just about saying, oh, it's not a fireman, it could be a firewoman to our kids or? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're all such huge questions, aren't they? But I mean, I think Gina's just given such a brilliant practical thing. Yeah. So even if 10 people who are listening to this podcast, yes, I mean, when we hit a million followers and they watch <laughs> Gina again and we get 500,000 people doing it. How amazing will that be? Well, that'll make a huge difference. I think I think that's, uh, you know, I mean, the easy thing is to say, well, yeah, let's have conversations yeah. about it. But I think action is really what needs yeah, to be done. Yeah. And people getting involved and not being scared to do something. Mm. You know, we are, all have these capabilities to, to change the world mm. if we determine to. Mm. And we actually do something about it. And I guess talking about it's a start. Yeah. But doing something. Is very good. And I must, well, one of the things that um, that it makes me think of as well is even, for example, well, in my family, you know, highlighting Jacinda Ardern, you know, highlighting some of the female leaders and what they are doing for the world. I think all the Baltic nations are all female leaders and, you know, the, the, North, you know, the, um, the Scandinavian countries are all led by females and they're doing very well, thank you very yeah. much. 
Don't they often have the best education oh, yeah. marks mm -hmm. in that as well? Yeah, the Finnish and the Estonians are brilliant educators. Mm. <laughs> More right. women. And interestingly, um, Ukraine, um, you know, which is suffering such terrible conflict at the moment, that also has an amazing... Um, uh, you know, educational standards. Uh, people yeah. travel there from all over the world really? to study. They had mm. very um, well-respected um, universities. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there are many, many countries mm. where uh, education was was valued. And um, in Iraq too, you know, uh, before um, the Gulf War, Iraq uh, was really respected, uh, a lot of groundbreaking um, in terms of academia, a lot of groundbreaking doctors, engineers. Mm. Um, so, you know, there there is a lot of um, educated people out there who, mm. who want to make a difference. And uh, I guess the Ukrainian conflict, I think people find it so shocking because it's in Europe. Mm. And we think mm. of oh, where, you know, Australia is sort of a history of European colonization. Uh, a lot of people identify with Europe and mm. seeing a conflict unfold there, it's sort of like, oh, the, the, mm. the unthinkable. But, um, yeah. you know, there are countries all over the world um, yeah. where conflict is happening that I, I'm sure the people there also thought it was, you know, impossible to, to yeah. happen. Um, but if you let your, you know, turn a blind eye to the rise of um, undemocratic uh, elements. If you put mm. um, profits, uh, you know, one of the things I found um, when my friends talked about how Saddam Hussein came to power, um, a lot of it is to do with the economy. You mm. know, he did great things for the economy until he started waging uh, wars and yeah. people were prepared to you know, ignore what was happening in terms yeah. of human rights mm. uh, because of the uh, economy. And that's certainly yeah. not something that is unique to to yeah. Iraq. Um, so, you know, I think that's, you know, when I look at um, what's happening in America, yeah. for example, yeah, exactly. you know, uh, it shows you that democracy is quite much more fragile, I think, yeah. than we um, think and yeah. that we do need to value it and support mm. it and um, yeah. try and support also the tradition of um, free speech, of respecting yeah. each other's yeah. opinions in a civil um, way. Uh, you know, that's, um, you know, on a smaller scale, I guess, we're talking about big picture peace building, but, you know, mm. at the political level also, yeah. um, that's something that we need, we can do by being civil, um, you know, respecting democratic uh, traditions and um, taking part in democracy too. Uh, mm. You know, I lived in America actually on two occasions. Um, mm. I spent a couple of years in New York and then later I spent um, six years in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, a lot of Americans don't vote. Mm. They don't have compulsory voting there and mm. many, many people just simply yeah. do not vote. So, um, you know, the will of the people isn't necessarily represented by who is in, in mm. power. And um, 
Yeah. One thing I discovered when I came back to Australia was, was that the penalties for not voting are now very, very insignificant. And mm. um, when I left Australia, yeah. it actually um, was pretty costly. If you didn't vote, uh, you were tracked down and you got a large fine. Mm. Um, and now, you know, it's not it's, it's a pretty minor penalty. No way, and, is it? Um, yeah, 55 I yeah, didn't realise. Yeah, I thought it was a big deal too. Mm. Uh, yeah, the penalties have definitely decreased, yeah. and um, you know I think it's it's good in Australia that we do have compulsory yeah. voting. Even mm. places like Canada, it's not compul. Where you know I sort of think of Canada. My husband's from Canada. We Australia has a lot of sort of shared traditions, mm. ge large geography, multicultural population, um, yeah. history that we have in common, but. Uh, People there don't have to vote, mm -hmm. and um, we're sort of shocked by the idea. But I think it's great because then we do yeah. have a say in, uh, yeah. you know, who our our government is representative of mm -hmm. people's yeah. think to, you know, yeah. some extent. Um, I think they and, think that, uh, that they yeah. want the uh, people who think about voting to vote. But I think it's it's important to to encourage everyone to think about it and do it. So yes. absolutely, yeah, agree sure. with you. Yeah. 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 So yeah, cherishing um, you know the right to vote, yeah, uh, and actively actively voting, not just going through the motions, I guess, yeah. and ticking a box is is uh, you know a way that we can mm. protect mm. Our, our own mm. democracy. Because yeah. I mean, imagine if it was taken away, the uproar that it would that there would be if if we were, if, if we if that right was taken away from us, um, it, it would be terrible. So, but I I just feel like yeah, perhaps we don't realize how lucky we are to have that. Um, so all of our listeners out there need to uh, be getting out there and voting, putting it, well, I, I guess as well, for me, I, I figure it's that thing of don't complain about something unless you're actually willing to have partaken in it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, sure. that how, Gina, how can our listeners find out more about you? How can they stay in touch? Oh, okay. Well, um, I have a website. It's ginawilkinson.net, um, so you can always um, reach out to me um, through there. Uh, I'm also um, fairly active on Instagram. Uh, you can meet my hairless cat, Obi-Wan, uh, and I also <laughs> post um, bits and pieces uh, on there. I guess they're probably the two easiest uh, ways to, to reach me. Um, yeah, you know, I'm actually a re relatively new to social media uh even though i was in the the traditional media i sort of avoided social media like the plague and my publishers said you must get on social media and uh it was actually better than i thought it would be um i actually uh you know i've reconnected with a lot of people around the world that i sort of lost contact with because nobody emails anymore that's also you know a forgotten technology um and i remember i also joined Facebook and the first day I was on Facebook, I saw a um, post from one of my closest friends. Uh, she lives in New Zealand. And um, she was actually mentioning that her father had died and I had met her father many times. And if I hadn't been on Facebook, I probably wouldn't have known about that. So mm. I immediately, you know, contacted her and, um, you know, I was just so grateful that uh, she, she probably wouldn't have individually, E emailed me individually to tell me about that until much 
later down the track. Um, so yeah, I'd actually uh, as long know, being as it a doesn't... recent a recent newcomer to, to social media, I've, I guess I'm still in the honeymoon phase. <laughs> as long as you don't get too addicted that you're scrolling, scrolling, and not writing your second book. Too, right? I know that's what I was or wondering. Book, is book. is there another one coming up? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Um, I, I have some ideas, but I've got to admit, um, the whole uh, lockdown thing was very difficult. I've got yeah. two boys, um, school-age boys that needed a lot of homeschooling. Yeah. Um, one of them has uh, multiple learning disabilities, and the other one's on the autism spectrum. So, oh, no, you know, yeah. dealing with wow. people over it's the tough. internet, actually not too bad for him. Possibly easier than um, in real life, but uh, the organisational aspects of getting the work done, that, that was uh, pretty much a full-time job. So I really had to put the, uh, you know, creative side of my life on the back burner. Um, but they have gone back to school now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I miss them so... No, um, <laughs> no so uh, that, that is, has uh, really, you know changed my day and um so i have more time to start working on my next book okay well we'll have to i'll 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 keep so i'll keep looking at you on instagram to find out when that what that might be about or when that might be coming out Mm. (laughs) well gina um it's been a delight like uh suzanne spoke very highly i i i'm looking forward to reading your book and uh, it sounds like a really interesting perspective and wow, uh, what an experience and to get it down in fiction is wonderful. So well done. And thanks so much thanks. for your, your insights and your practical suggestions. And it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank so. you so much oh, for joining you. us. Thanks so much. Oh, lovely to meet you too. Okay. Bye everyone. Oh, and don't forget to what? subscribe, what? Yeah. comment, like, yeah. all the above. All listen of those to the, things. Oh, you can listen to the pod, the. Uh, sound podcast on yeah although if they've just watched us on youtube they may not want to then listen as well true but they may want to listen again yeah (laughs) okay bye everyone